You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thoughtfully through Columbia University's Great Books Reading List. I'm David Grubbs. Uh, I am living in Houston, Texas right now, uh, and I am an English professor at Houston Baptist University. Uh, you might have heard me on Christian Humanist Podcast and Christian Humanist Profiles and um, a few other podcasts on our network where I've, you know, sort of popped up as a as a visitor, sort of, you know, uh, doing doing my uh Oh, what do they call it in Muppet movies? I have no idea where you're going with this, Grubbs. <laughs> no. Uh, cameos. That's what it is. Cameos. You, you realize they have those in places other than Muppet movies, right? That's, well, you know, now, now you and everybody else are getting the, uh, getting, getting that sense of, of what my cultural frame of reference is. Anyway, um, the 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 gentlemen who who do not inhabit the same imaginative universe as I do apparently are Nathan Gilmore and Jay Eldred and we'll start with Nathan uh, where do you live what do you do where my listeners have heard you on the network well listeners listening to this in years to come uh, will recognize 2020 as the year of the Rona and uh, I am a professor of English at uh, Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs. But this semester, I'm teaching all of my classes from my home in Statham, Georgia. And also, you are one of the original three on Christian Humanist Podcast. Oh, yeah, that too, yeah. I do some podcasting, too. <laughs> <laughs> you have been known to do so. Uh, and also, Jay. Uh, Jay, where do you live? What do you do? Where might listeners have heard you on the network? Well, listeners might have heard me on Sectarian Review. That's where I show up most of the time, but I've been known to come on... Oh, let's see, Christian Humanist Profiles and the Christian Feminist Podcast and a few other, few of the other shows from time to time. I'm currently, or still, in New Bern, North Carolina, getting ready for another hurricane season. And um, if you've heard me on past shows, you'll know that I'm a history teacher, but there's been a slight change in that. And I'm not teaching any longer. Um, I'm currently in the Student Services Department at Craven Community College in New Bern, North Carolina. Excellent. Well, we're coming at this from different directions, uh, bringing different experiences into this conversation, different disciplines and things that we've taught and things that we've lived. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. What we're talking about this season is the second of the Homeric epics, the Odyssey. Uh, why on earth that isn't in the great books list right after the Iliad, I'm not entirely certain. But uh, I'm happy to return to Homer after uh, the brief foray into Sappho. The books that we'll be discussing in this episode are books three and four. And 
you know, for those of you who don't know Homer and didn't listen to uh, the first season of Core Curriculum, uh, when a Homeric epic says book, it means something more like what we would call today a chapter. So uh, when we say, you know, we read books three and four, don't imagine some kind of, you know, massive multi-volume, you know, uh, Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time style <laughs> <laughs> fantasy multiology. So as we're coming into book three, obviously, dear listener, I assume that you've listened to uh, the first episode where they talk uh, about books one and two, and so they're, you're familiar with that plot. But the threads that you really need to pull through are the, the plot thread of Telemachus, who... Uh, has been spurred on to uh, search beyond uh, his home in Ithaca for news of his lost father, Odysseus. Uh, he's uh, guided in this quest by uh, his father's patroness, the goddess Athena, uh, who has taken the form of one of his father's old friends, um, a guy named Mentor. Uh, so... The first stop in this, you know, quest for news is uh, with Old King Nestor in Pylos. So maybe that's a good, maybe that is a a, a good place to start. Um, what do we know, or what, what what would be important for our listeners to know about or remember about Nestor from the Iliad as? why this would be a good place for Telemachus to start his journey. One thing that we hear quite a bit about Nestor in the Iliad is that he is from the Herculean generation. And it's sometimes hard for me to remember, unless I've been reading Homer recently, that the events of the Trojan War are really only a generation after Hercules, even though, in my mind, Hercules is more of a mythic figure in the Trojan heroes more legendary, so I mean, I, I think of them as a little bit more connected to something like a chronology. Uh, but, you know, uh, old Nestor was on the field with Hercules, also with that generation of people, and the refrain that Nestor comes back to over and over and over again is that Agamemnon and Achilles and Odysseus uh, might think that they are pretty grand, uh, but ultimately they are shadows of uh, what the old heroes of the Herculean generation were like. Uh, so Nestor is the voice of an age that has passed. What else is going on with Nestor, Jay? You had the same notes that I had. I know that I wrote down he he's old. Um, I was trying to figure out exactly exactly <laughs> nice. how old how old he may have been. I wasn't successful in that, but um. You know his his wits are still about him. He's still he's still as sharp as he was in the in the Iliad, um, which even in the Iliad he was considered one of the older men then as well. So he's he's been around the block a time or two, which in a in a way it kind of makes sense that that's where Telemachus would start his journey with someone who who knows what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that Nestor that, that Nestor is is one of the last survivors of what would be in this in this setting um, something that they might call the greatest generation? Maybe um, again that term greatest generation. I don't know that any generation that was called the greatest would actually actually claim it for their own. Um, 
Good point. But, Good point. Which again, I guess that might, that might be what helps make them makes them the greatest generation. Right. Um, uh, next generation was named that by uh, Thomas Brokaius. And enjoy Googling that joke, dear listener. (laughs) Oh, now now I've got to get back into the right mind mindset. Um I know we were talking before before the episode about Telemachus's journey and the fact that he for quite a bit of these of these books, he spend he doesn't spend time in action. He spends time listening, and at least for me personally, that brought back a lot of um, a lot of emotions for me. I know I don't know how familiar our listeners are with with some of my work on some of the other shows, but I had a very 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 good friend. His name was Mr. Tom Poole, who I had the privilege of knowing for about thirteen years or so, and he was part of that greatest generation. Uh, fought in World War II, he was at Pearl Harbor and and Normandy and was just off of Tokyo and when the uh, atomic bomb was dropped and just all of that information that he had. And I really felt a kinship with Telemachus in these in these books as he's taking the time on the journey to find out what's happened to his father. He's not, oh, you don't know what happened to dad, I'm out of here. No, he's taking the time to listen to those that had experience and to learn from them. And I don't know, I, it was it was a very uh, bonding moment for me, I guess you might say. Yeah. With, I know that this isn't uh, this isn't the book in order, but there's something similar going on in book four as well. Uh, when he moves on, uh, he and his his new best friend, um, Nestor's youngest son, um, when they move on to Sparta, mm-hmm. uh, there's also a good bit of storytelling there as well. But for some reason, that that storytelling in book four feels a bit different from the storytelling of Nestor. Um, Menelaus is a lot more scarred, maybe bitter. Perhaps, and then it, I might not have the events in order, but at that point, aren't they also drugged? Oh, she, she, oh yeah, she, uh, she drugs them after they start crying. All right, she being Helen of Sparta, <laughs> aka Helen of Troy. Oh so man, that, that might have something to do with it as well. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's you know, Jay, I've never thought about it from that angle. Yeah, man, and then I grabbed him, and he turned into a panther, and then he became like fire, but I was still holding him, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was after, yeah, that was after Helen spiked the punch. That's when the party got started. Um, yeah, okay, we're, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to get to this punch, to the punch spiking. Um, but meanwhile, uh, back in Pylos, um, another one of the things that I thought was really interesting going on here, um, I love Nestor. He's one of my favorite characters from the Iliad. He's one of the very few characters who I think comes off as consistently sympathetic. Um, the uh, So that that reunion was a welcome one for me. 
But I'm also really interested in in the prominence of religion in book three. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a whole lot of cows die. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And and then you have that weird moment where uh, Mentor, who is Athena in disguise, gets invited to say a prayer to Poseidon. So she is what, what praying to her uncle. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, she she is uh, she is praying to to you know Uncle Uncle Poseidon. Um, but. That particular scene I thought was so interesting as as kind of a window into what religion means in in the culture that Homer is presenting, which you know how much this had to do with you know whenever you know what we might what we we might call you know Homeric Greece you know kind of Greece of that kind of dark age um, you know to what extent does the do the Homeric epics, you know, present that authentically? We we don't we don't quite know, but the notion of having um, large sacrifices with this, you know, large scale, you know, slaughter of beasts that turns into a beach barbecue, right? It's it's like they went straight from you know slaughterhouse to you know luau. <laughs> In you know ten lines. Well, you know uh, the, the the gods will consume the incorporeal part of it, and you're not going to let good meat go to waste. Yeah, exactly. And I, you also get mention of burning of the bones. So I mean, I, yeah, I mean there does seem to be a a certain uh, division of things into what you know what mortals can use and then what gods can use. Yeah, the gods have a particular cut, as it were. Uh, and humans aren't supposed to eat the god's cut. Um, but it seems like the humans get the steak, right? It's the, god, the gods seem to have chosen peculiarly. Yeah, I think I remember the, the story being that Prometheus s- taught the humans how to sacrifice, to placate the gods, and they were, and, and they were trying to determine what part what part of the beast the gods should get. And so what Prometheus did was he took the entrails and the skin and the bones and he wrapped it in fat. And the gods chose that part. Hmm. Because the fat was, because fat, that fat at that time was considered a good thing, right? You didn't want lean meat, you wanted fat meat. So they saw the fat and were like, oh yeah, the fat. Um, but it had all the bones in it. <laughs> so it was kind of a trick, if I remember rightly. So, David, do you remember, I mean, what what text does this come from? Is this an Ovidian invention? Is this something that emerges somewhere else? That might be Ovid. It might be Ovid. It might be, um, it might be that, Hesiod. That, that, that sounds like an Ovid story. <laughs> it does sound like an Ovid story. Very impish. Um, but... Yeah, I, I, I've taught a, a, a jumble of a jumble of texts years enough ago that it's difficult for me to keep them straight in my head. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So it all gets kind of boiled down to the sort of the Edith Hamilton gestalt. Uh, Edith Hamilton. 
anyways, mm-hmm. what, is there anything else that's that's worth uh, worth talking about? This you know these scenes of of, of sacrifice and worship. Um, I'm reminded Nathan of the ways that uh, the ancient Israelites were commanded when they brought sacrifice to not not only to bring animals to be slaughtered and offered, but on some occasions to feast as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, there's definitely a connection in that ancient Mediterranean world, and I, I really can't speak for, you know, much farther out than, you know, maybe Mesopotamia. But, I mean, in a lot of the texts, I mean, a festival and a sacrifice are very intimately commi- uh, connected. I mean, to the extent that, of course, you know, our, our listeners who are familiar with the New Testament – know that, I mean, there's more than one occasion in which a New Testament text has a conversation about whether or not uh, meat that has been part of a sacrifice to idols is permissible for Christians to consume. I mean, that's how prevalent the practice was that, you know, Hmm. you actually have to talk about it, you know, in ways that in the 21st century we really don't have to have that conversation, whether you can have steaks from, you know, the Zeus temple. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, and I'm reminded, too, of the way 1 Corinthians talks about um, sharing in an idol's table. Yep, you yep. Um, and then that, that comparison to uh, sharing in the Lord's table, um, that act of kind of communal eating that is also an act of uh, communion with um, the deity. What else in book three is well, stood out to y'all as worth discussing? Well, I, it kind of relates to the question that you just asked about religion. And for, for certain, we had a fair number of sacrifices in the Iliad. But somehow these, the ones in, um, in the Odyssey seem different in the fact that outcomes aren't necessarily certain. In other words, throughout the Iliad, it seemed like these events have always been fated to happen and nothing that we're going to do can change it. Whereas it seems in the Odyssey, we have this idea that perhaps things aren't fated to be and are, in fact, more fluid. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. <laughs> that is interesting. So, so I mean, it's it's hard to point to to like a line or something like that, but just in looking at the way that these sacrifices are offered in the different motives behind it. Um, that's what stuck out to me. Yeah, and I'm, I, I think it's significant that when Nestor tells the story of breaking camp after the Trojan War, there is a schism that almost comes to armed conflict within the Greek camp, whether they should, you know, do sort of a perfunctory thank the gods and then get in your boats, or whether there should be a formal festival uh, with extensive animal sacrifices and so on and so forth, and, you know. Uh, is that Nestor's story or is that Menelaus' story, David? Am I switching those? I think that I – bl- I believe that's Nestor's story. Um, yeah. yeah, I've got it. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, I just found it in my book three notes. So I think but, it's interesting that, I mean, that for Nestor is one of the, one of the things that doomed Agamemnon and Odysseus is that they were in too big a hurry that, so that they neglected those sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the the uh the ideas that they needed to do their due diligence and then they and then they just sort of paid the price there's this larger debate that goes on through the entirety of the odyssey um which you know i'm sure uh you you remember a listener um from books 1 and 2 but the first the opening conversation of book 1 of book 1 is between zeus and athena about whether whether the suffering that happens to humans is the consequences of their choices uh, or the fates that gods impose upon them. And so that question of who's at fault um, is, is actually running from the very first book of the Odyssey. And the story that Zeus tells as an example of humans... Um, humans paying the price for their bad decisions is the story of Aegisthus, uh, who he says Hermes warned away from uh, the sinful acts that he famously committed. Uh, and then as a result of disregarding the warnings of the gods, he then pays the consequence um, and is pursued by the Avenger. Um, but Nathan, you... You know that story from another angle. Uh, a couple different angles, really. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually am teaching tomorrow, and I have taught uh, several times before, uh, the tragedies of Aeschylus, known as the Oresteia, uh, the tragedies of Orestes, the son of Agamemnon. Uh, and so it's interesting that in those plays, the central tension uh, is between the sacred duty of Orestes to avenge his father, uh, which in that play means killing his mother. Uh, and then on the other hand, his sacred duty not to murder his family. Uh, and no matter which one he does, the gods are going to punish him for it. Uh, so he ends up doing one of them. And listeners, I'll let you uh, either read it for yourself or wait until core curriculum comes around to Aeschylus and we'll talk about it then. Uh, but I mean, that is the, the driving force behind that trilogy. In this one, I thought it was interesting, David, that really the closer parallel that I saw, uh, and of course it is Homer influencing later writers, not the other direction. Listeners don't write that email just yet. Uh, but I, I definitely saw on this reading of Homer, uh, some influence that, that comes to echo eventually in Shakespeare's plays. Mm -hmm. Because in Shakespeare, just over and over and over again, probably most famously in Hamlet, uh, you get the son who is reproaching himself uh, for not being a swift enough Avenger, especially when he compares himself to uh, a more active and a more, uh, oh, I don't even know, a, 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 an avenging son with more initiative, I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, echoes of this uh, narrative in later literature, you know, in the Athenian setting with Aeschylus and then, you know, much later on with uh, with Shakespeare. It's interesting that you said that because one of the notes that I made was that Athena reminded me of King Hal and Henry V going from camp to camp listening to the soldiers speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's nice. Well, and I mean, she does have very much that captain's role. Yeah, and, and, you know, that, that's another parallel, Jay, that I thought of is that, you know, Telemachus here is the Prince Hal being compared to the Hotspur, who is Orestes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's nice. I mean, the equivalence between Orestes and, uh, or uh, sorry, but between Orestes and uh, Telemachus, that is also a pervasive thing. Um, the the first time that, uh, if I remember rightly, I think I think the, the the first time that Athena encounters. Telemachus in book one, if I'm remembering rightly, um, she she goads him for not being more like Orestes. Uh, I, I find it so fascinating that in in the version of the story that we have here in um, book three, and then Menelaus has his own kind of meditations on the murder of Agamemnon as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what becomes the thing that everybody knows about Orestes because of, because of Aeschylus is not at all the thing that's in these stories. Right, right. Right. Well, and the death of Agamemnon is is wildly different, too, because the death of Agamemnon, as Homer tells it, is a lot more like the death of uh, Amnon in uh, the book of, what, which one is it, Second Samuel? Where, you know, I mean, he's invited to a feast and then, you know, hired thugs jump him and stick knives in him. Whereas in the Aeschylus mm-hmm. tragedy, I mean, Clytemnestra, you know, is just, for my money, the greatest supervillain in Greek literature. I mean, you know, she holds her bloody knife in the air and with this hand and with this knife I did the deed and now it's done, you mother... No, she didn't say that last part. But you get, you get the <laughs> point. I mean, uh, she is just very, very proud and she is center stage saying Agamemnon is dead and he's dead because I killed him. That's the that's the Tarantino version you were remembering. There you go. <laughs> I'd watch that. No doubt. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. I'm just fa- one of the things that fascinates me uh, as I teach this stuff is the ways that different versions of stories, different versions of characters, crop up uh, throughout the source material, and I keep having to unlearn the gestalt that I've received. Um, oh, absolutely! And the the fun thing is, I mean, you get some of that in the Old Testament as well. Which, I mean, tells me that, I mean, in the ancient world, there is just a different set of conventions for storytelling, right? There are no continuity police in the ancient world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, if, if you ask the Old Testament the question, how does Saul lose the kingship? The answer could be because he rashly made an animal sacrifice without waiting for Samuel to show up. Or it could be because he refused to kill a prisoner of war that Samuel wanted him to kill. And, you know, those are wildly different stories, but they're both the reason that Saul loses the kingship. Yeah. Yep. Our, you know, our tendency to want to uh, synthesize the narratives, I don't think that's always a bad thing. Um, of course, especially, you don't, <laughs> of course I don't. You know, it, well, you know, I, I, I've been litigating this for eleven years, man. <laughs> well, I know, I know. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, 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 you know, I think there, you know, there was a David, and he did things, and he was a particular way. Um, but if synthesis is my 
main move, my first move and my only move, um, then that means I'm I'm muffling the particularities of emphasis that come from different narratives. Um, and that's even more the case when we're looking at something like Greek mythology where it's not just you've got like the, the, the varieties are massively different. I mean, one, one of the differences I was kind of um, poking around on uh, as I was prepping for today, because uh, later uh, towards the end of book three, Telemachus meets a girl. Um, uh, very, very briefly, she like gives him a massage. Um, but in some of the later Greek sources, uh, he's supposed to have married her. Oh, that. But then that there. <laughs> but then there were like two other people that Telemachus is supposed to have married, <laughs> and all of them come from the Odyssey. And so you get this idea that later Greek writers were looking at the Odyssey and were like shipping Telemachus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they're like, oh, we think she he should be with this. Uh, what was her name? Uh, Polycasty, one of Nestor's daughters. Like. You know, towards the end of book three, she, like, gives him a bath and rubs him down, and and you're like, oh. Um, and someone was like, yeah, I bet they end up together. But then other people thought that he would end up with Nausicaa from, you know, I think book five. Anyways, uh, book six. But, yeah, I, that that uh, multi-layer, multi-generational fast, uh uh, quality of this material is is a lot of fun. David, well, I've got a completely off the wall question since we're talking about variations in these stories. Um, I, I have messed around and done some research, but I, I feel like uh, I could ask you this question and maybe learn something. It, is there any mention of of Achilles having armored skin before Stadius in the second century A.D.? Because that's the earliest I've been able to find huh. that legend attested. Um. Hmm. That 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 he is very specifically invulnerable because of. Except for his heel, yeah. Except for the heel. Um. That in Stadius, but I've never been able to find it earlier than that second century A.D. poem. Is it not in Ovid? I don't. Feel like it is, but uh, like I said, that's why I'm asking you. At any rate, sorry, listeners, that that's just okay. something that to me here. Uh, maybe David and I can go research it, and I don't know, post it in the show notes. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that, that you know, but that, that that that's totally a thing. A lot a lot of the stuff that that we remember about Greek mythology um, is sometimes things that come that came out in later layers, so that when you're eating, reading the earlier layers, like the Homeric epics or um, the earlier Greek tragedies, the stuff that becomes the thing you remember or the major thing of the story um, is simply not there or it's not important. Yeah, it, it took me a long time to train myself to think that Achilles could die in the Iliad. Right. Right. Huh. That's, that is fascinating. Es especially when um, you consider... Uh, uh, well, you know, that that would be a spoiler for the Odyssey, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. 
Let's just say that Homer has different ways of working through the idea that a particular soul, that a particular warrior is unstoppable. Do you want to shift on to book four and the incredibly dysfunctional marriage that is Menelaus and Helen's household? Let's go there. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> what what were your, what were your impressions re- reviewing book four? Of, of kind of meeting these characters again, I don't know, maybe for the first time since since y'all worked, uh, d- d- you know, done the Iliad last. Yeah, well, the first thing that I noticed, David, is that Menelaus is, at least in the Fagel's translation that I'm working from, just very, very eager to shut the conversation down every time, you know, the topic of Helen running off with Paris comes up. Uh, yeah. and And I find that interesting because... You know, in so many other sources, uh, and again, I've got Aeschylus on the brain because I teach Aeschylus about as often as I teach any Greek text. Uh, you know, I mean, they just dwell on the fact that, you know, uh, Helen is the one who's responsible for all this death, and her sister Clytemnestra is, you know, probably going to kill someone, wink, wink, before all is said and done. Uh, so, I mean, in, in Aeschylus, I mean, you know, Helen is just, uh, she is put under the spotlight and everyone throws tomatoes at her. Here, whenever Helen, well, first of all, it's Helen who brings up, you know, her, her role in, you know, the beginning of the Trojan War. But every time she does, Menelaus says, no, 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 let's not talk about that. Jay, that, <laughs> you seem to have the same, uh, impression there. Yeah, um, I think we arrived at the same conclusion from a different standpoint, I noticed that um, Menelaus pretty much gave the same story that Nestor did, but he gave it a lot more quickly. And I wrote down that he was succinct, but maybe he was just telling the story to get it done so that attention wasn't drawn to Helen. That wasn't exactly something that I had picked up on. Yeah. Helen is kind of a bull in a china shop in this story. Uh, or in this particular book. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can't really ignore her. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, oh, what is the the uh, the description? She walks in the room, uh, emerged from her scented lofty chamber, stri- striking as Artemis with her golden shafts. When you see Helen, it's like you just got shot. <laughs> <laughs> A remarkable lady. Um... But she emerges from her chamber just after Menelaus has greeted these two young strangers and has made this very pointed decision not to ask them who they are until they're done eating. Uh, and then when he alludes to the Trojan War and his sadness for all of the friends that he lost, especially that Odysseus guy, mm-hmm. Telemachus weeps. It says that Menelaus recognized him at once, but pondered whether to let him state his father's name or probe him first and prompt him step by step. So Menelaus is, is reading the conversation. He's, he's sensing, uh, this is a sensitive subject. I need to be tactful here. And then, you know, not 20 lines later, Helen rolls up and is like, you look just like Odysseus. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
I bet you're his son, the boy that hero left a babe in arms at home when all you Achaeans fought at Troy, launching your headless, your headlong battles just for my sake, shameless whore that I was. Change the subject, please. <laughs> it's so funny. She's, it's like, oh yeah, you look like Odysseus, that guy that's lost because of the war you fought about me. My bad. Yeah. Now, I've got a question, guys. Uh, well, first of all, I'm using the Fagels translation. Which ones are you guys working from? Fitzgerald. Also okay. Fagels. Okay. Uh, well, David, I mean, you've studied this more than I have. When she does, uh, you know, drug the punch, which comes right after this bull in the china shop moment you narrated, the, there's a weird moment in the Fagels translation where, uh, and I'm down around line 245, give or take, yeah. Uh, into the mixing bowl, uh, from which they drank their wine, she slipped a drug, heart's ease, dissolving anger, magic to make us forget our pains. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is this a book of Acts moment where, <laughs> you know, our poet is suddenly on the boat, or what What? what the heck happened there? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that, oh gosh, that's really interesting. Um and listeners, if you didn't catch the Book of Acts reference, I mean, there are parts of the Book of Acts where all of a sudden the narration shifts to first-person plural. We went here, we went there, so on and so forth. And then yeah. it goes back to third person without any explanation. And scholars have, you know, created a cottage industry out of speculating, you know, where the narrator of Luke Acts is during any given event of the book. So... Uh, I'm wondering if that same kind of thing is happening in this narrative. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know Greek. I've not, in, I've not read or, uh, encountered this, this text in that original language. So I don't know. I don't know what Fagels is rendering here. Are the, is the pronoun thing in Fitzgerald, Jay? No, no it is, um, third person the whole time. Interesting. Okay, so it might just be a universal us. Like, we human beings, when we get a Mickey slipped into our wine, we tend to forget whatever it is we were thinking about just a month ago. Okay. And and listeners, if you want to get mad at me, you should also go listen to the Christian Feminist episode on Baby It's Cold Outside, because that'll get you good and mad. Nice. Well, the – yeah, okay, so she slips this drug in. Because they've been telling stories about all of the friends and family and loved ones that they lost in the Trojan War, that is her fault. Like, the... I, I, yeah, once again, she, she, she behaves more like a goddess than a human being, in that she seems to... She wants to get behind human wills. She wants to arrange the scene in a particular kind of way. She doesn't work with people. She wants to work on them. And so she slips this drug. She's more like Cersei, if that, uh, you know, to kind of fast forward to a, to a later book. Yeah, that parallel makes um, good sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, she gives them this poison that she got from Egypt, and there's this long description of where it came from. And then right after that, she tells this story about how that time that Odysseus snuck into Troy, and she totally helped him because um, she was nice and uh, really on their side the whole time. 
Um, I promise. <laughs> and then Menelaus immediately follows it up with the story about how they were in the Trojan horse and Helen tried to trap them into exposing themselves so that they would all die. Um, it's that, that, that moment, uh, of Menelaus and Helen just sort of staring each other as they both tell stories about Odysseus in the Trojan war that also happen to have Helen in them and make her look very different. Uh, and yeah, then, that, that- that story that she tells is so alien to what I think of as war stories, because when people are doing commando raids and war stories, as I think of them, I mean, it is, you know, they're breathing through their noses. They are silent as the night they are, you know, and here, you know, I mean, as Helen tells it, they are just on the urge of saying, come on in this horse and kiss me, baby, or am I going to die? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, is, is that is that really how I mean people thought of you know stealth warfare in you know the eighth century BC or whenever this is being recited? Well, I mean, we do have the Ninja Night Raid in the Iliad um, with uh, Odysseus and Diomedes, but other than that, I don't know that they're great at stealth. Yeah, point taken. Point taken. We also have to remember that they are remembering events in the past, and we do have, and by we I mean humans, we have very selective memories about what we'll right. choose to remember. Yeah. But Telemachus is the best guest in the world, because right after they have their dueling Troy stories, Telemachus steps in and says, oh, look at the time, let's all go to bed now. He kind of yawns, <laughs> yawns hugely. Oh, look at the time! <laughs> and then it's off to bed for everyone. Um, one of the things that is perennially talked about when uh, looking at the the Homeric epics, um, but especially the Odyssey, um, the Odyssey has a couple of kind of big topics. One is um, the the topic of of homecoming, mm-hmm. uh, the the homecoming thing, a uh, theme, uh, but also the theme of uh, hospitality, of Xenia. Um, what would we draw out in these books as examples of what that culture means by hospitality? I'm I'm always struck by the. I guess I'd call it almost an ordered politeness of of all of the events in books three and four, as Telemachus is, for lack of a better way of putting it, as he's making his rounds to to the old veterans. Um, they know why he's there. They could just come out and you know tell him what's going on, but they're they're using their their role as guest. You know, they're giving him a good story. They're giving him food, shelter, and clothing in some cases. Um, I don't know. It's it's very alien to the way that we would consider hospitality. Um, I think that especially as Americans, our idea of hospitality is the emphasis would be perhaps on on the guest, but 
in the Greek world, it appears, at least to me, to be on the host and their response. And they have a great responsibility and a great privilege, but it's that – oh, I just lost my whole train of thought. Um, I don't know. It appears that there's a lot more going on in the Greek world than in ours. I, I like that, Jay, because it makes a lot of sense of the cut that happens late in Book 4 from the court of Menelaus to the court of Ithaca. And if the yes. – if the emphasis is on the host, then, you know, the the atrocious behavior of the suitors, I mean, really falls into stark contrast with the respect that Telemachus shows both for Nestor and for Menelaus. Uh, you know, it, like, like I said, I mean, that, that took me off guard this last time I read it because, uh, you know, we are very deep into this scene at, at Argus. Or Sparta, Sparta, sorry. Uh, and then, you know, see, I, I, I told you I've been planning uh, to teach Agamemnon tomorrow. Uh, but then, you know, when we cut from Sparta to Ithaca, you know, our focus, you know, shifts from the eminently polite Pisistratus and Telemachus uh, to, and I jotted down their names, uh, Antinous and Eurymachus, uh, who are, in a very straightforward sense, making plans to murder the heir of the host. So I mean, you know, it's 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 almost Dantean and it's a contrast there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Structurally, I find it fascinating because most of the time Homer's transitions between scenes uh happen at the boundaries of books or a character travels from one place to another so that there's so that there's that 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 continuity of movement. Um, that so that with one thing leading to another, um, there aren't always. Uh, that, that, this isn't completely unique, but he doesn't do a whole lot of this kind of fast cut, like fade from that scene into this scene. Right. Um, and I, I, I feel like that's very pointed in the ways that you're drawing out, Nathan. You know, we are meant to look at these two very similar scenes back to back. And say this is where it's being done right. That is where it's being done wrong. Is there anything else that we want to draw out from the court of Sparta before we uh, before we follow uh, Homer on his his transition into Ithaca, back into the the, the thick of the suitors and their plotting? Well, I, I, I know I keep uh, ringing this bell, but I just have to keep ringing the bell. You know, we already mentioned the story of the death of Agamemnon, which is which is very reminiscent of uh, the story of the death of Amnon in Second uh, Samuel. But the other thing that that struck me is that uh, Ajax or Aias uh, simply dies in a, a you know out on the ocean. He drowns. He's at the bottom of the sea. Whereas when Sophocles picks up the story of Aias. I mean, it is this sublimely dramatic suicide scene. So again, I mean, you know, the, the <laughs> if if you are looking for you know a, a job as continuity police uh, for ancient Greek literature, I mean, you're you're going to be out of work in a hurry because none of these texts have any impulse to uh, follow each other's lead. <laughs> is it the same Ias? Or same Ajax? Oh, it might have been little Ajax instead of big Ajax. 
Because that, that just now occurred to me that there were two of them. <laughs> You've got a there's there's a set. <laughs> like one is the early Pokemon version, so, and the so other you, is the. So you think the, the drowned Ajax is little Ajax then? I don't. Um, I mean, it, it, if I was, if I, uh, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, is that in, um, is that in Menelaus's story or Nestor's story? Uh, it's I, definitely in Menelaus's story. Yeah, it's okay. somewhere around uh, line 500 in mine. Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah. Okay. Ajax, um, taunting the gods and then gets struck down. But it does it? It doesn't give him. Um, it doesn't give him the patronymic epithet or or the epithet of size, which are the only ways I can tell the agencies apart. <laughs> right, right. And I guess I only ever think about little Ajax when the pair gets mentioned in the Iliad. Other than that, I assume it's the big one. But that's right. probably a, a bad assumption. <laughs> you know what? Uh, spoiler, that's got to be little Ajax. Um, because, well, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> uh, <no>. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, they have the feud over the armor, but, yes. I mean, I don't think Homer ever mentioned suicide. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. He he encounters, um, Odysseus encounters Ajax uh, in the world of uh, the land of the dead later on, but, you know, spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> and he won't talk to him. You know, surprise. Uh yeah. Let's see. I'm I'm looking real quick at uh at my notes to see if there's any other uh any other things from uh the courtly land of Sparta. Um Well, I mean, you know, that that wonderful story that I mentioned as a as a spiked punch joke earlier. But the you know, the <laughs> If you've ever heard something called Protean, uh, this is the narrative text from which, as far as I know, the classic Proteus narrative emerges, right? I mean, Proteus mm -hmm. is capable of turning into any form, and so therefore, I mean, you have to take certain measures to ambush Proteus, but then, even though Proteus is utterly duplicitous, or I guess polyplicitous, uh, in physical <laughs> form, uh, he does not lie verbally, which I think is just a, just a wonderful mythic construction. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there are some things that he can change, and some things he can't. Um, the uh, I, I'm also interested in in all of the the those that you encounter who will tell you the truth. Um, the function of oracles in these stories. Um, is always very interesting, uh, and and the encounter with Proteus is is uh, an an important one in this book that sometimes gets glossed over. Um, I think this is something that we're probably going to keep coming back to in this particular series. But that is um, that if you if you have memories of the Odyssey from like high school, what you remember is probably uh, some kind of of uh summarized version of books 9 through 12. <laughs> right, right. With, yeah. With maybe some Odysseus returning um to avenge himself upon suitors. Uh but uh, I I know that 
what I had always thought of as the main thing in the story of Odysseus, uh, the first time that I taught it, I was surprised at how little of the Odyssey was the part that I had thought of as the main thing. So, yeah, the, the Proteus story is one of those, um, one of those bits of the Odyssey that I think often gets left out of the, uh, the boiled down for the consumption of the younger, uh, versions. But it's well worth, uh, well worth the effort. It's a gem. Before we, uh, before we move on, I just wanted to say one other thing about hospitality. And that was that I think another thing that stood out to me was that it was um, required to show hospitality regardless of who showed up at your door. Um, Menelaus is giving hospitality without knowing who Telemachus is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he very pointedly does not ask who he is uh, until he's already lavished hospitality on him right the the only um the only requirement for hospitality is that someone is there yeah let me ask you guys this though i mean it seems that usually hospitality is extended to noble or royal visitors though uh and i mean i i guess the reason i bring that up is because there doesn't seem to be a corresponding obligation uh, when, for instance, uh, I'm trying to think of a, an example other than Odysseus in disguise at the end of the epic. Uh, but I, I guess I'll just have to go to that one. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think that the I, – I forget if he's the pig keeper or what – or that's Black Cauldron. Uh, <laughs> or, uh, it might be pig keeper here too, but he is commended for welcoming in uh, what seems to be a beggar. but it doesn't strike me that the royal family has any sense of obligation to beggars when they show up, or am I getting that wrong? Well, there is that um, that weird story that Helen tells uh, about encountering uh, encountering Odysseus undercover as a beggar, and she catches him when uh, she basically compels hospitality upon him and recognizes him as she is washing his feet. Um, did she recognize him before she started washing his feet? I don't I mean, but at, at some point, uh, at some point in the game, and as far as everyone else in Troy knows, uh, Helen is extending hospitality to, uh, uh, a a a very disreputable looking beggar man, um, but again, it's Odysseus in disguise, <laughs> <laughs> and it's also Helen telling the story. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, she she tells some some weird ones. Yeah, I, I think that's probably something to watch as we go to see who offers hospitality and to whom, and for what reasons. Uh, I, I, I've, like I said, it's, it's one of the, one of the themes that will keep surfacing again and again. It's one of the things that this, uh, story seems to be most interested in. Um, uh, if, uh, listeners, if you're reading along with us, uh, look closely at the beginning of book four 
and you will see this moment when the strangers roll up at Sparta in the middle of a double wedding. By the way, like we, we should not we should not miss this. It's not just that strangers rolled up at the court of Sparta. It's that the Spartans are like they got plans, man. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> Harry po- it's a Harry Potter themed wedding. Yes, Hermione. Yeah. <laughs> Hermione's getting married, uh, and when. Uh, Oh, I can't remember what the guy's role, if he's like a butler or what he is. Anyway, when one of Menelaus' servants rolls up on his master and is like, hey, man, um, there's these two strangers. Uh, should I send them to someone else in the city for hospitality? And Menelaus is no, is his response is, uh, shut your mouth. <laughs> uh, but what he says is, that would be uh, essentially that that would be a terrible way to repay all of the people who were hospitable to us when we were wandering in our in our own search for home mm. uh he he sees he sees extending ho- uh, hospitality to these strangers as in some sense part of that cycle um, in which he was a receiver of hospitality during that journey that he describes where he encounters Proteus, um, if that wasn't just the drugs. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I, again, I mean, I, I keep seeing these Old Testament uh, resonances, I'll call them that. Uh, the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments, you know, is pretty explicit about, you know, because you were once slaves in Egypt, therefore you will allow your workers, including your indentured servants, to rest. Yeah. And because you were strangers and aliens, you will be kind to strangers and aliens. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Uh, And interesting, too, I mean, this is even even a historical link. Um, If you follow the... the, It seems like a pretty strong uh, theory, a pretty strong... Um, interpretation of the evidence that the Philistines were a colony of sea peoples who originated in that kind of northern Aegean area that we associate with the cultures of the Trojan War and the Homeric epics. Um, Mm -hmm. Then we actually do see in, uh, in 2 Samuel um, and in First Chronicles, we see David, the Hebrew king, showing hospitality to Philistine strangers and Hittite strangers. Well, I mean, he well, he didn't do a great job with that one, but you know, show, showing hospitality to these uh, strangers from other nations and incorporating them into his bodyguard. So, yeah. I wonder. It, it it makes me it makes me kind of wish that the Philistines were telling stories like these, that there could be some kind of like literal link between uh, Homer and Hebrew literature. That'd be really fun. But we don't have this text, <laughs> sadly. So. We are right about at an hour, and we haven't really dealt much with the suitors. Um, what do we want to say about the end of book four uh, so that the people who are in the next episode can 
start with book five knowing that the transition was handled smoothly. Go ahead, Jay. I mean, do we just want to summarize it? I mean, the the suitors, essentially, they find out that Telemachus has not gone to tend to his flocks, but has instead gone on this journey for information. Um, and then, you know, because their whole goal is to either take uh, or is to take Odysseus's estate, whether by we might say by hook or by crook, they decide to send out the strongest or whatnot. Yeah, the most able bodied of their group to set up an ambush for him. Um, and then again, as they're as they're plotting, they in turn are overheard. And one of Penelope's uh, slaves goes and tells her. And she, in turn, makes preparation to ambush the ambushers. Or something like that. Yeah. Skullduggery and intrigue. Yes. And and then at the end, we also have another appearance of Athena, of Athena comforting Penelope. And yet she won't tell him whether Odysseus is alive or not. Which 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 is which is an oddity in the Odyssey is that you know here at the end of book four, um, you know I mean we had a mention in uh, book one that you know Odysseus is kind of cooling his heels somewhere in the sea, uh, but you know at this point presumably the gods know full well that Odysseus is alive, mm-hmm. but they ain't telling anyone. Yeah, I even wrote that down that Penelope has to suffer more than anyone because she has to to deal with the suitors, but then she also deals with the uncertainty of knowing whether Odysseus is alive or dead. Right. The, the suspense of it for her, it's not suspense for, for us. It's very much like the, uh, that, that quality of dramatic irony that you see in, in some tragedies where the audience knows, but the characters don't. Mm Uh, in this case, it's not just that the audience knows and the characters don't. It's that the gods know. The gods who are literally on the scene talking to the characters. They could dispel <laughs> the, the, the fears and worries of Penelope and Telemachus with a word. But they don't. It's almost as if... Athena, part of Athena's agenda is not just returning Odysseus home, but doing so in the most dramatic way possible. Mm-hmm. She doesn't just want him home. She also wants her ta-da moment, which is a very interesting characterization in a way. Would Athena's- you say that she is a diva? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> a little bit. Maybe. Well, anything else that we want to say about uh, books three and four before we head to the exit? Nope, I think I've pretty much said what I'm going to say. Um, I like the Iliad speeches a lot better. That was one of the things that I noticed is that, I don't know. They, it seemed a little bit more sharp or forceful or maybe well-designed or well-executed, but there just seems something lacking in, in the way that people are speaking in this, in, in this book. 
Maybe it's just me. Maybe we'll get some good speeches later, Jay. I hope so. <laughs> uh, some 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 rousing uh, some rousing uh, b- battle battle speech. Not yet, not so far, uh, not in these books anyway. Just mostly storytelling, reminiscing, and melancholy. Well, listeners, that is our episode of core curriculum on the Odyssey books three and four. Uh, we hope that you've, uh, if you haven't, if you haven't read the Odyssey and haven't gotten to those books yet, we hope that um, we haven't spoiled them for you. But in fact, if you know, helped inspire you to read and pay attention. Uh, there's good things here. Uh, rich details, uh, rich characterization, um, fascinating insights into uh, the ways that cults, cultures work and the ways that stories are told. In the meanwhile, Core Curriculum is a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, if you want to contact us for, for feedback, you can send that to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it on uh, Facebook. Christian Humanist uh, Podcast has a Facebook page. Um, and also we are on Twitter, CH Radio Network, if I remember right, rightly, at CH That's Radio right. Network. Very cool. Um, our website is Christian Humanist. Dot org. 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 It's been a long time since I've done this, listeners. I'm rusty. ChristianHumanist.org. Well, uh, I look forward to the next episode of this podcast, and I hope you do too. And in the meanwhile, have great weeks.